0: I'm no physicist, but one of the things that gives me a lot of comfort is the idea that no matter is ever destroyed, ever created, that everything that lives and dies is still part of the world in some way, in some decomposed atomic way or in the ways that our lives are touched. I have seen in my own life and in others' lives how when grief becomes calcified or cemented or isn't doesn't get to take up space, how then it can manifest in ways that can sometimes be hard or hurtful. I had just this clarity that if I didn't give this some space, it couldn't process, it couldn't marinate. There's a Thich Nhat Hanh essay about how grief is a raw potato, but if you can grieve, then that potato cooks and it can feed you and it can nurture you, but you can't eat a raw potato.
1: Hello and welcome to The Deeper Podcast, a podcast all about living lives that unleash courageous love in small and big ways. I'm Rev. Sean, one of your hosts, and today we're joined by the Rev. Elizabeth Gwynne in our second Sunday of our series, Rage, Grief, and Goodness. Each episode in this series takes the form of a conversation between one member of the Foothills team and a community leader or Unitarian Universalist minister, who we've been invited to speak at the intersection of these three daily realities, rage, grief, and goodness. Elizabeth is a Unitarian Universalist Community Minister, a Midwesterner at heart who currently makes her home in Boston. She is both a great teacher and student about liberation, solidarity, and courage. Currently she serves as the Immigration Bond Coordinator with the National Bail Fund Network and has previously done faith-based justice work and youth organizing. She's a passionate advocate of progressive organizing in the Vietnamese American community, building power across prison walls and feeding people. What stands out for me in this conversation with Elizabeth is her honesty about grief, her sometimes stubborn avoidance of the pain of loss and the necessity of time and self-compassion for healing, but also that there are intentional practices we can take up that help us move with our grief both the personal grief, but also collective grief. After the interview, Reverend Elaine is gonna guide us through a meditative experience in which we're gonna get in touch with our grief, coming into relationship with it as not something to be changed, but something to be learned from. So stick around. Okay, let's dive into that conversation with Elizabeth. I'm so thankful that we get to have this conversation with you, Elizabeth, this morning diving into our theme. And so I thought I'd just begin with a really open question of how rage, grief, and goodness, the intersections or parts of those are showing up in, in your life right now.
0: Today, I'm thinking a lot about my grandmother who died from COVID in January. I think about her a lot in general, but because we are trying to hold a memorial in October, but like so many things these days, we don't know if that will be possible. And so there's a real tender grief there. And then there's also just like all of the ironies and hilarities of life. And one of those is that I'm forever doing too many things on my computer and getting all these notifications. Maybe you're one of those people where it's always like, you don't have room on your computer. You need to delete things. This- Like your disc is full, your disc is full. And every time I go to like try to clean up my computer, the thing that's taking up the most space are these beautiful and also so tender videos from when my grandmother was dying of COVID and we were able to be with her over video. Mm -hmm. And there's just something about like those recordings are taking up so much space and I want them to take up space. I want them to be part of my life as we go from here. And also many of us know that loss involves all kinds of mundane and inane logistics that we never thought we would encounter, which in this moment for me is a lot of like, your disc is full because you don't want to delete beautiful videos of your dead grandmother singing songs from the music man. So, you know, and then I think the rage piece, many of us have lost so much that is connected to wider systems, whether that's losing jobs or losing years of school or losing loved ones to COVID or to climate chaos. And I know for me, there's a rage that comes from some sense that we could have done things differently that we could have built a different world and my grandmother actually got covid like a couple days before she would have been vaccinated in the assisted living facility she was in and i am a person who who can get real worked up and really angry about injustice And part of my journey has been to understand how that rage is actually part of my grieving and part of my love, that it comes from the love that I have for her, for the many things we've lost and people we've lost, for this world, and those all get to be intertwined. And I brought this um, piece of art from the artist Molly Costello that says, grief and love are sisters. And I think we could probably add another sister and say that grief and love and rage are sisters. They're all coming together and weaving together, and that at least for me, my grieving is always going to involve expressions of love and expressions of rage.
1: I'm playing with that metaphor a little bit that, you know, rage, grief, and love are all sisters. I mean, not all sisters get along all of the time, right? There's a lot of tension and um, just exertion that happens when you're trying to deal with, you know, dynamics in a family. And so, like, I'm wondering how you have found those different dynamics. Like, how do you get those those sisters in a place where you can experience each of them for what they are?
0: Yeah. You know, we're... We're all so different, and I think a lot of this is about our own spiritual journey journeys to know ourselves. So whoever put grief is suppressed solidarity, like I'm a suppressor, I'm a number outer, I'm a let's just do the next thing, as is evidenced by the like, your hard drive disc is always full. And I think for me, a lot of it has been about like, holding compassion for like, that's part of how I am and simultaneously giving space for other ways of being. So it's really powerful for me to do things in honor of people. And today is the anniversary of a friend who died by suicide a year ago, and he had survived the immigration system in the U.S. He had been in immigration prison for a long time and had experienced very traumatic, horrific things. And we're doing a lot of organizing right now where I live around the the jail that he was in and around trying to get folks released and free from that jail that hurt him so much. And I find a huge amount of power in that, in knowing that the emails that we're sending, the meetings we're having with elected officials, the protests that we'll be holding in a week, that those are acts of memory and love and honoring of him. And I also know that there that, that is more of my rage sister and that there gets to be space on the timeline that allows, that emerges for the love and for the sadness that we don't get to have a different ending we don't get to have a different chapter for him. And I think another thing I think about is like, time is such such a mess. Like, what is time? And grief, as I think many of us have lived, is not linear. I saw someone talking about the waves that come. And sometimes things just need time. I think of my, I have an uncle who I never got to meet who died in the Vietnam War before my family came to the US and I heard stories about him growing up, but it took me many years to ask my parents to tell me more stories about my uncle. And it took me even more time to get a photo of him to add to the altar that I have that has photos of people who are important to me who have died. And it took a long time for me to go to Vietnam and to spend some time thinking about where he might be because his body was not recovered in the war. And that was just the time that needed to happen. Like, there wasn't a way to make that there wasn't a a faster time and it was right on time. So I guess time for the sisters that don't always get along and Honoring the practices and the ways of grieving that have worked for us and not judging ourselves. If we're the type of person who something horrific happens and we want to throw ourselves into work and make the next to-do list. And also making space or getting to choose a different way. A few years ago, I went on a little bit of a grief retreat because I've learned that part of me being an introvert is that I need to be alone to really feel deep, deep feeling. And it was the first time I'd ever done anything like that. And I spent some time with friends in the mountains, in the Southwest, and I wrote a lot of letters that I never mailed around this particular loss. And that was very powerful to me, partially because I was choosing a different way. And it was just the time for me to choose like, okay, I'm used to numbing out. I'm used to keeping going. I'm gonna experiment with a different way and choose to let that sister, the grief sister have some more space.
1: Hmm. Could you speak more about that, that choice? <laughs> How did you know to make it? What did it feel like? What shifted in you as you chose that, that different way?
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I'm no physicist. But one of the things that gives me a lot of comfort is the idea that no matter is ever destroyed, ever created, that everything that lives and dies is still part of the world in some way, lives on in some decomposed atomic way or in the ways that our lives are touched. And I also have seen in my own life and in others' lives how when grief becomes calcified or cemented or isn't, doesn't get to take up space, how then it can manifest in ways that can sometimes be hard or hurtful. And I think I, I had just this clarity that if I didn't give this some space, it couldn't process, it couldn't marinate. There's a Thich Nhat Hanh essay about how grief is a raw potato, but if you can grieve, then that potato cooks and it can feed you and it can nurture you, but you can't eat a raw potato. And I think of this understanding of grief by Earl Grohlman that says, grief is not a disorder, a disease or a sign of weakness. It is an emotional, physical and spiritual necessity. The price you pay for love and the only cure for grief is to grieve. And I think that those words, like the only cure for grief is to grieve, I was like, oh, it's not checking more email and joining more amazing groups doing social justice work. Oh, like maybe I should like try a different thing. And it did, it felt to the question of how it felt, it felt kind of selfish and it felt kind of like a risk. Like, oh, I'm really gonna like go away to, Santa Fe and to stay with friends to grieve and and side by side was like just this clear sense of like oh but the grief is gonna grieve itself somehow and like it's gonna emerge and what a gift to have the privilege and the space and the time to choose to give some space to be in the desert and to write letters and burn things and move my body outside
1: that that phrase from that quote the only cure to grief is grieving and your kind of addendum that the grieving is going to happen no matter what feels especially prescient for me as I think about all the ways in which I suppress or pretend that I don't need to grieve like I pretend oh I'm not I'm not close to that oh that doesn't really affect me I'm functioning and then I move through my time and I uh, realized that my, my hard drive, my heart drive, if you will, is full and I don't have any more space or capacity. And then I'm shocked by my own need to grieve and realize that I've been doing it and coping in ways that I wouldn't have chosen if I would have had that capacity to be conscious and be like, oh yeah, I actually do need to grieve that. I, I wonder like, what does it mean to grieve? it seems like a really simple question of like, what does it mean to, because there's such a finality of loss, the death of someone, the death of an idea. Like a lot of the grief that I worked through in my teenage years was around like the grief of ideas of things that I thought were true, but are no longer true or might never be true. What does it mean to grieve those? What does it mean to grieve in general?
0: I feel like I asked this question to my therapist recently where I was like, but what does it mean? (laughs) I'm thinking so many things. I mean, one one thing I'll share that's been very useful to me is a framework that says that grief, there there are tasks of grief. And that one of them is to accept the loss, to experience the pain of the loss. That's one that I am often resistant to. I usually just want to skip to adjusting to a new life without mm-hmm. the loss. And then to reinvest in the new reality. And I I have found that very helpful as like a person who wants to like understand what is like happening in my brain and spirit. And But I think I will also just say like, I feel very committed to like, we all get to grieve in very different ways. And some of us are gonna grieve in ways that are very much about like, being present with the loss, and maybe look to society more traditional, like with prayer and song. And I grew up with this very strong tradition of building an altar and honoring death anniversaries and lighting incense on those anniversaries. And for others of us, we're grieving, and it may not look like quote unquote spiritual or may not look the way that society thinks grieving looks. So just to say that, I think we only know for ourselves if we're moving through that acceptance, allowing us to ourselves to feel the pain of loss, adjusting to a new life with the loss as part of that life and reinvestment in the new reality. Like that's something we kind of have to be in touch with ourselves enough to know. And and I think being in community is also a huge way that I have learned like, oh, like people can be like, Elizabeth, you think you're grieving, but you're like super irritated that I forgot to buy almonds this week because I <laughs> live with a, a community of other folks. And it's like irritability, resentment, frustration, community community can be so powerful for like reflecting back some of those things that help me look in the mirror and say like, oh, actually that's grief. And it's coming out for me in those other ways.
1: You've spoken about a lot of different practices that have helped you and helped other people in communities deal with grief and loss. Talk about altars, writing these letters, Pilgrimage, even to places to be present to it, even if there isn't a specific place. Like you just spoke about in your journey to Vietnam, I wonder what practices have helped you move through your own grief. Practice that might be helpful for others, especially I think if we, as we deal with these griefs that like are hard to put a pin in. Like it's hard to put a pin in exactly the grief. Um, of climate crisis to put a pin in the grief around the covid mismanagement and all the death especially if we don't have a specific tangible proximate connection to it but it's this general sense of grief and pain at the world so what are some practices that have helped you kind of move to that place of being able to reinvest and kind of find the goodness in life rather than being stuck just in the pain or the avoidance
0: I think it's really hard when the grief is ongoing, like it's one Mm. thing, like to lose someone or something in a way that feels like it has an ending, and then you can reinvest in that new reality. And, you know, one of the blessings in a way of losing my grandmother this past year is we do get to as a family journey together in a pretty clear way like we get to remember her with stories and chicken wings because she loved chicken wings and brown-eyed susan's because she loved brown-eyed susans and we get to tell the stories about her to younger members of our family and we kind of, we know that that's where we are and I think you know with climate and with many other things we're still in it you know I think about this I have the honor of being in community with a lot of folks who are facing deportation and who are in prison and it's not post-traumatic. Like the trauma is now, the grief is now and there's no sense of when it will end Mm. in terms of practices. I mean, you've named a few that, that, that have been very nourishing to me. I find practices that have some connection to my spiritual or familial ancestry to be particularly powerful. So for me, having an altar, I will say one of the things I've noted over the past 18 months or two years is I have refused to print photos of the people who have died in the past two years, including my grandmother, and add them to my altar. I just, and I think that's also part of my like journey on grief is to like know when maybe that's just not the time. Like there's a resistance in me to that and the time will come. But I think for any of us, Creating some sacred space where we can put, whether it's symbols, rocks or water or leaves or photos or even like drawings or words, where we can put in one place and hold in sacredness the things that are connected to losses is very powerful. Anything that like makes tangible all of the mess of like Rage and sadness and frustration, and what if I had and I should have gone to visit, and why was I, why am I living through 2021? Like anything that takes that and puts it somewhere, I find for me very powerful. So, the letter writing, especially because often when we're trying to accept the loss or reinvest in the new reality, what we want to do is like say things to the person, or Mm -hmm. we want to say to that you know, grove of trees that doesn't exist anymore, or to that town that I'm not going to go back to because it floods there all the time now. Like, we want to say things and we can write letters or record audio messages that, it, that express uh, those things. And also just like, we're we're not robots, like, we're full humans, which can be sort of horrifying and also totally amazing and so there's for me I I have to also engage my body in different ways which has sometimes means singing for me there's nothing like a good combo sing cry that's like a really good way to just like release but I love you know that you brought up pilgrimage because I think moving in some way whether that's you know driving a route or rolling a path or hiking a really big hike or swimming a distance that allows our bodies to be in a journey as our spirits and minds are also in a journey Mm. and i feel like that can really help us to not feel like oh my like mind and heart are over here full of grief for the political situation but my body is like
1: over here stuck (laughs) one question that already came up was what does your death altar look like and you you've sort of described it a little bit i don't know if there's anything you wanted to add to your kind of description
0: yeah i i love the response it can look different for each person Mm -hmm. and i think you know often folks find it meaningful to put a picture or a memento of people that we've lost in that space i think for me having it in my life is a way of honoring that those people are very much part of my life, even if they're not in this current realm. Mm -hmm. And I know for me, many of us have cultures, even if we're multiple generations distanced from those cultures that have some practice of altar build. And so one question might be like, is there a practice that's connected with either our family or our spiritual family that might feel Powerful. So whether that's like an Irish or German or English, like ancient practice, or whether that's a Unitarian Universalist practice that might be connected to practice of having a, an altar with a chalice on it. How I grew up was like, this is also a place where the ability to communicate with your ancestors is more porous. And mm. so it's a physical location where I can go and create some space to be present with those people and and those losses rather than feeling like they're here but like but not having a, a physical space to like tap into those connections
1: it helps us grapple with things when we externalize them to have a place to go to 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 write down our thoughts to write those letters it helps us be Be in relationship with it rather than it kind of being just a mess of of bodily and thought experiences and seeing that thread of the practices are just ways to to be in relationship within it that that helps us (sighs) grapple with it rather than just kind of being consumed in it Um, yeah
0: and i know not everyone's life is like this but i know for many of us we live more and more in our heads like we receive so much information in written form from the news, on our phones, over email. And then that's very different than, I think, in some ways how humans evolved, which was in a very concrete realm of like, mm-hmm. we hold our loved ones when they die because we never moved far from them. Right. We think of them on anniversaries, surrounded by other people who knew them because we live in one place. and. No judgment on <laughs> this world or past world or our other worlds. But I do think for those of us who really live in the headspace, making things concrete is very powerful.
1: Mm-hmm. I think our time has come to a close. What when you were speaking, Elizabeth, about the kind of rituals, it made me think about some of the practices we do at Foothills, the practice around All Souls Day and Halloween of our altar building and remembering. And I know that our climate justice ministry is going to be inviting some opportunities for grief salons around Mm -hmm. climate grief, that opportunity to come together and to name that grief together. It's one of the gifts of having a community and a spiritual tradition that tries to make space for that grief for us, because it's hard to both do the grief and create the structure to deal with the grief at the same time. Mm -hmm. I think that's the gift of a community is that we can do that for each other. And so I just want to thank you, Elizabeth, for being a part of that that tradition that helps us do this work together of just naming it for us in a new way.
0: So glad to be with you all and, yeah, honoring the really powerful questions in the chat and hoping there's some space for more of that in all the different ways that you all gather from here.
1: Thanks so much. In our conversation, Elizabeth quoted Earl Garman, grief is not a disorder, a disease, a sign of weakness. It's an emotional, physical, and spiritual necessity. The price you pay for love, and the only cure for grief is to grieve. And that there are specific tasks to grief, to accept the reality of the loss, to experience the pain of the loss, to adjust to life without and finally to reinvest in the new reality. This sort of work isn't easy. You could hear in Elizabeth's voice the way that she's walked in this journey, a journey that isn't linear, a journey that doesn't have easy answers, but one that needs to be walked, and a journey that's always best done in community. I feel like I heard that over and over again in her stories, the way that it was community, other people, that helped her notice when the grief wasn't being metabolized. It was other people who went on their retreat with her to Santa Fe, It was a community of her family that could hold the practices that over generations helped her family move through the realities of death and loss there is so much goodness for our souls to chew on from this conversation that's why we've created an online space for our deeper community to reflect together deeper online is a private social network space where we invite intentional curious and deep discussion about what we've heard This week, we want to hear from you about what practices help you move with grief. On Sunday, we heard people talking about writing letters to their loved ones, even sending emails to an email address that was set up specifically for loved ones who've passed away. And so pop over to Deeper and share your experience and be fed by the experiences of our Deeper community. If you're not a member of Deeper Online, you can join at tinyurl.com deeperuu. Having a place like Deeper Online allows us to practice with each other, doing the important but difficult work of answering the call of love, discerning what that means, and never truly feeling alone. That's tinyurl.com slash deeperuu. I'm gonna pass it over to Reverend Elaine, who's gonna invite us into a centering practice of meditation and reflection, around the concept of grief. Now, this may be too much for you, and if that's true, you can pause it. If you're willing to have a little discomfort, I invite you to stay. is going to invite us to visualize our grief in a way that doesn't bring it all back, but allows us to see it in a new light. It's a really healing and centering practice, especially for those of us who struggle to accept the reality of loss or to notice what it's teaching us.
2: like to invite you now into a time of meditation and reflection and so let's start by getting a little grounded in our bodies if it feels right place your feet squarely on the ground maybe wiggle your toes take a deep breath in and let it out slowly let your shoulders drop a bit let your brow relax Maybe you'd like to soften your gaze or even close your eyes. And as we open our hearts today to reflection on rage, grief, and goodness, I'd like to invite you into a time of reflecting a little more deeply on grief. Grief, sadness, the act of mourning. These are deep waters. These are deeply primal human experiences that our dominant culture does not make space for, does not make time for, and is desperate to distract us from. But in this safe space, in this shared space together, we can open our hearts just a bit, just a little more than usual And notice what's there around grief for us. Knowing that all our feelings are okay. Not all behaviors are, of course, but all feelings are. And this includes grief. Collective grief. Personal grief. And it's okay if you are grieving this morning. At the heart of grief is a loss and at the heart of this loss is love a connection a connection with a person connection with an ecosystem with a community a connection with fundamental rights with the web of humanity at the heart of our loss is love, a connection. Francis Weller writes, my grief says that I dared to love, that I allowed another to enter the very core of my being and find a home in my heart. Grief is how the soul recounts the depth to which someone has touched our lives. To love is to accept the rights of grief. It's okay to feel grief and to feel utterly bereft. Out at sea, fundamentally and viscerally altered, this is deeply human. Our sorrow works on us, it reshapes us. There's no returning back to normal, only surrendering into our next becoming. Rashani Ru writes, there is a brokenness out of which comes the unbroken, a shatteredness out of which blooms the unshatterable. There is a sorrow beyond all grief that leads to joy and a fragility out of whose depths emerges strength. In order to come to this place of deeper intimacy with life, this place of leaning into love with even more exquisite tenderness. We have to engage with our grief, let ourselves move a little closer to it with enough spaciousness to learn from it, to learn about it, And this can be scary, it can be deeply uncomfortable to engage with our grief. And so today, I'm not going to ask you to make a deep dive into your grief, but just to experiment with a simple practice. A practice of curiosity. A practice of feeling into these questions. I invite you to ask yourself, where does grief live in your life right now? Where does it live in your body? I invite you to type into the chat, but not to submit it yet. But just type into the chat, where does grief live in your life right now? Where does grief live in your life right now? And I'm going to give you just a couple more seconds because we're all going to hit submit at the same time. All right, go ahead and hit send. Grief lives on my tensed up shoulders, in my heart, in my gut, in the news, in my relationships with family, missing friends, missing my wife. Grief lives in my throat and chest, in my loneliness. My dad passed away last year and his birthday is coming up. Noticing that the grief is suppressed, grief in the news, grief living in the forest fires in the West, grief for dream, grief living in memories, In the loss in my heart for my daughter. And we can continue to name where the grief is living in our lives in the chat. And I wanna just offer my deep gratitude for all of you who are naming this grief and sharing it with us for trusting us in this space, in this church community, in this time to witness and hold your grief with you. So I'd like to invite you into a second experiment in our meditation today. Maybe you'd like to close your eyes if they're not closed already, but imagine that this grief of yours, whatever grief it is you're holding, whether you can name it or whether it's ambiguous for you, imagine it as a body of water, a body of water surrounded by a beautiful forest. And you are the only person by this body of water. And you in this space, you have all the space you desire. You have all the space you need. And you can be as far away from that body of water as you need to be, just observing your grief. And if you imagine your grief as that body of water, I wonder, what does it look like? How deep does it go? Are the waters still? Are the waters rough? And as you sit in proximity to your grief, what do you notice? What thoughts arise when you witness your grief? And wherever you find yourself right now, I wonder if you could work your way into offering yourself compassion in this moment. Maybe even picture wrapping compassion around yourself like a blanket, surrounding yourself with love, offering generosity to your tender heart, feeling generosity for your humanity. We are all human, all in this together. May love surround us and hold us all. Amen.
1: Next week on the podcast, we'll be joined by the Rev. David Williams, who's the lead pastor of the Abyssinian Community Church here in Fort Collins. David has been a leader in the Northern Colorado community against racism for decades. We'll also be joined by the Reverend Joseph Moore, a Presbyterian pastor, current vice president of the Fort Collins Interfaith Council, and co-host of the Faith in Progress radio show and KRFC. Reverend Gretchen is speaking with each of these leaders, and it's gonna be a powerful conversation to see how they locate themselves at this intersection. So you're gonna wanna tune in. Now, if you don't already support our work here at Foothills Unitarian Church, we invite you to. Making a contribution, a recurring donation, allows us to keep providing these sorts of messages that allow us to go deeper into our lives and unleash courageous love, not just in Northern Colorado, but far, far beyond. Your donation will make it possible for us to continue to provide this sort of discourse, which is exactly what our world needs. Thanks for listening to this, our second episode of The Deeper Podcast. Now, this is an experiment. We're trying this new format because we want to take the goodness that happens on Sunday mornings and put it in a format that works with our daily lives. And we'd love to know how you think it's going. Drop me a line at sean at foothillsuu.org to tell me what you think of the podcast, what we could do, what opportunities do you think we could open up in this space? We really want to hear from you. Thanks for listening, and until next time.